0: all in this together. That's covenant and it's clearly not so anymore. It's not so because the top third have separated away and the bottom third is mired in a situation in which, you know, it hasn't seen a rise in real income since 1970 and its hopes of social mobility are now zero.
1: Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting, well-known, clever people and try and drill down into their core beliefs and work out what it is they're all on about. And today I'm absolutely delighted to have with me Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, formerly Chief Rabbi, academic, uh, theologian, winner of the Templeton Prize, and so much more. I'd like to have you. Charles, you're,
0: you're not there yet, but <laughs> this is why we have grandchildren, <laughs> to bring us down to earth again, you know. <laughs> so I was broadcasting a few weeks ago on Thought for the Day, and I spoke about my grandchildren, and my daughter was listening on the radio, and she told her four-year-old daughter... Oh, look, there's grandpa talking about you. And my four-year-old granddaughter looked up and said, Oh, how embarrassing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So... We've just been uh, talking now. I discovered you were born in Lambeth, but you have no idea why.
0: No, no, the circumstances of my birth are not part of my active memories, I have to (laughs) say. But, uh, no, um, both my mother and father grew up in London's East End. Right. At the time when that was a pretty Jewish sort of place. a Point of arrival, really. Yeah. um, Near the docks. And uh, my grandmother ran the wine shop, Frumkin's Wine Shop, which eh, lots and lots of Jews in the in the in the East End used to uh, used to buy wine from. And, my grandmother was a real social worker, although she couldn't read or write. But she would when she, somebody she came, couldn't read or write no, at all. She was from Russia, and she she couldn't she couldn't read or write, but she was very savvy and very interesting. So when people used to come into the shop, and don't forget, the Jews in the East End were pretty poor. And she, they'd come in to buy a bottle of wine, let's say, and she would never just let them buy a bottle of wine. She'd say, sit down, and she'd take a bottle of wine that was held open, and she'd pour some into a glass and say, try this. And while they were drinking the wine, she'd ask them, how's their family, how's this, that, and that? And she'd find out how they were doing, and if they needed help. She knew who to contact That's to make sure they were helped. And so, you know, just a social uh, capital comes in strange ways. And she turned this wine shop into really a community center. And that was great. And my dad and his dad sold schmatters, that is, you know, ends of cloth. I never saw a customer in the shop, maybe one a week. You know, <laughs> my, I don't think my dad ever made a penny of it. But um but but that was not very far away, so we're a sort of East End that, sort of my, family. Great grandfather uh-huh.
1: worked for the Jewish Board of Guardians, right? And his job was to find people jobs yeah. when they came over from Russia, and po- was part of that community as yeah. well. So yeah. I'm sure they probably knew each other. You it's know, a very but that, that's community.
0: probably you know the subject that's interested me so much: this power of community. Yeah what I call the power of we. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're negotiating a strange and difficult and not very n- nice world sometimes, it does help to have that bond of community. Yeah.
1: And the, the, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but yeah. the sort of
0: we-I distinction yeah. is at the core of your new book about morality, isn't yeah. it? See, I, I... Because my dad came over as a as a child immigrant... And my mother was. Your mum was
1: from Russia, and your dad came from. No, no, my
0: my mum was born in England. Oh, your grandmother. My grandparents came from, from Russia and from Israel actually, and um, my father's family came from Poland. But he wasn't born in this country, so he left school at the age of fourteen. My mother left school at the age of sixteen. So they never had an education, and I think this is why we their four boys all all went to university because we had the education we knew they wanted to have had. Um, But what my dad did have was a very, very strong moral sense. He was an incredibly moral human being. And he was uh, really quite judgmental as well, I think. Righteous indignation was his default mode. (laughs) And it kind of left an indelible impression on the four of us. Um, my myself and my brothers. So I think we sort of inherited that from them. Was Yiddish part of their language uh, that they? Yid- they spoke Yiddish yeah. to one another. Right. But it, you know, it tells you something about the mindset of those days. That they spoke Yiddish to one another, but they never spoke it to us and never wanted us to speak it. Oh. They wanted us to be as English as possible. Yeah. And my dad in particular, you know, longing for this education that he didn't have, would always say to me, say me a $5 word, you know. So, so we learned words, you know. We, we, I, I, so um, I, th- I think they loved England. One and they the wanted this that... to be integrated and, you know, not assimilated, but integrated.
1: One of the things that you do so extraordinarily well, it seems to me, is you are, as it were, quite bilingual, which is to say you're thoroughly British and you speak the language that sort of secular Brits can understand. And yet, of course, you are uh, thoroughly Jewish. And and that those two things, are not any sort of contradiction, but you're... Your father would have been extremely proud. for
0: it. Well, he, he, he really enjoyed it vicariously, you know, and I enjoyed it because he enjoyed it. And I always remember, you know, when I did the Wreath lectures, I think, back in 1990, uh, there was a journalist called Clifford Longley, who was the yes. religious correspondent of the Times who said about me he's very English. Mm. And even when he's boring, he's boring in an English sort <laughs> of way. And I thought that was the best compliment I was ever paid. You you went
1: it. to um you went to Church of England primary school, didn't you? And I went uh, to
0: a Church of England primary school called St Mary's Finchley and then Christ College Finchley, my secondary school. So I always uh, had friends and grew up in an environment that was intensely Christian. Um, oddly enough, why was why was that? Why? why, why because they you... were the nearest. My mother never trusted me to cross the road. <laughs> I, see, I, see, I, see. <laughs> I mean, the primary school was three minutes walk away, and the secondary school was one minute walk away. I could hear the school bell as my alarm clock. You know, <laughs> it <was> very good. <laughs> right. So, um, uh, oddly enough, though, um, I christ college believe it or not almost half the kids were jewish right but none of the teachers was jewish so um every morning there was a christian assembly and for the first four years i was there the jewish boys just sat in classrooms finishing off the homework they should have done the previous night yeah, yeah. um but then some inspector said this is not in the spirit of the law which says everyone has to have a a religious assembly every day, so they had to create a Jewish assembly. But they had nobody to take it. So we took it. And that is how I learned public speaking. And um, if I had given a particularly good talk and there was one master at the back of the hall making sure we were behaving ourselves, he would go and tell the headmaster and the headmaster would say something like, Sax, come and give that... Talk in the Christian Assembly tomorrow morning, and I would do that. So I very, very quickly picked up uh, this technique of speaking to where people are.
1: Yeah, yeah. That 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 sense of community that's that 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 you're beginning to describe that was there in the East End, that was very stru- strong and thick, and and. That seems to me to be something that's absolutely essential sort of to the character of Judaism, something that's, that's deep in your book about this sense of we.
0: You know, so small things, um, like, for instance, you know, our, our prohibition against using a car on the Sabbath, means that for anyone who's an Orthodox Jew, you have to live within a walking distance of a synagogue. Now, that makes real community because, you know, you think to yourself, oh, you know, I've seen them in synagogue for all these weeks. Let's invite them for a meal. So you begin to do the synagogue thing and then the hospitality thing and then that naturally spills into the welfare thing if somebody's ill or somebody's bereaved or somebody needs help. So um, strong communities, I think, were the lifeblood. of of the jewish people really from you know the destruction of the second temple in the year 70. jews were always tiny minorities but they always lived close enough to one another to be a support network and every professional throughout the middle ages really until modern times gave his services for free to the community. So everyone was guaranteed a good education. Everyone had access to medical care. So they may have been desperately poor, but they had that thing that we call nowadays social capital. And I, I think that's uh, something that I'm quite proud of. Actually. I mean, in a
1: way, what you're describing about your family and how, how you sort of got on, it, we talk a lot about social mobility, these days this is a terribly good thing, but often what people mean by this is sort of getting on and leaving your community, going to find work in London if you're from some northern town which doesn't have enough work, and th- those sense of social mobility. Mm. But what you're describing in your life is is a form of social mobility without actually leaving the community, it's staying embedded within the community, and yet still can describe a sense of getting on and getting up.
0: I th- I think I still see that very strongly, and in, in, not in all communities, but in some. Um, you know, the the community I visit them around the world in Brooklyn, in Sao Paulo, in Mexico City, where um, the younger generation are quite successful, and they would be minded to move to different districts from their parents but their sense of community and loyalty to the family is so strong that they do just stay in the area. And, you know, I, I, I'm quite moved by that.
1: You left home, I imagine, to go to university. You went up to Cambridge mm. and did. What did you do there? Did you do theology at. at uh... No,
0: no. I had not the slightest thought ah. of becoming a rabbi, not remotely. Right. I what, went were you what were you wanting well, to do? Well, I make? went up there to study economics. After two terms, I found it overwhelmingly boring. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's great, you know, but, but it was unreal. And thank heavens for Daniel Kahneman and Thinking Fast and Slow, and okay. who, who, who's told us um, how people actually behave as opposed to how economists say they should behave. Um, and then I switched to philosophy and I had this extraordinary luck because I was interested in morality then of studying with – of being taught by uh, three of the greatest moral philosophers of our time. My, my doctoral supervisor was Bernard Williams. Uh, my doctoral supervisor in Oxford was Philippa Foote, who invented the thing yeah. called the trolley problem and <clears throat> virtue ethics and so on. And my undergraduate tutor, who's just died recently, was the late uh, Roger Scruton. So these were three really, really powerful intellects. And, yeah. you know, just to be in a one-to-one relationship with them was thrilling.
1: When you were at university, it's well known that you had a time in America. Yeah. And you met um, the sort of famous Rabbi Schneerson, the yeah. rabbi. Um, and that that was a powerful influence on you, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, because I had gone, you know, in those days every philosopher you could think of was an atheist. I mean, the really pious ones were agnostic, but that's as, that's as far <laughs> as it was, went.
1: Scruton was a sort of agnosticish ish sort of like, positive he, about Anglicanism.
0: Yeah, much later in life, yes. when he became a father, I mean, it was yeah. much later. You know, so I, I, I sort of felt an obligation to find wise people to answer some of the, you know, the sophomoric-type questions, you know, about the existence of God and the problem of evil and all the rest of it. So I went around America, and everyone said, um, you've got to go and see this man, Rabbi Schneerson. And somehow, it's a very long story, but somehow I got to see him. And he did this You ring, travel
1: on a bus, didn't you? Across on a Greyhound a bus, ca- yeah. Greyhound right, bus right across America. Him, yeah.
0: In fact, I travelled because I had to get to see him... Um, I was only told on Sunday night that he could see me on Thursday night. So I actually traveled from Los Angeles to New York on a Greyhound bus pretty nonstop, which I don't recommend to anyone. It's a 72-hour-plus journey. Um, and he did this curious thing of role reversal, having knocked through my questions very, you know, with very straight superficial answers, um, very simple answers. He then turned around and said, what are you doing to uh, intensify Jewish life at Cambridge? And I I remember beginning this sentence, in the situation in which I find myself, and he cut across me in the middle of the sentence and said, you don't find yourself in this situation. You put yourself in this situation. And if you put yourself in one situation, then you can put yourself in another situation. Fantastic statement of take responsibility. And then he was asking me and asking me how many Jews get involved, how many come to the synagogue, uh, to which the answer was not many, maybe 10 percent maximum. And I suddenly realized he was challenging me. Right. Go and lead. Yeah. And that's when, you know, I came up with this formula that everyone thought he was a leader with thousands of followers. And I said a good leader creates followers, but a great leader creates leaders. Right. And that's what he was doing with me. He was saying, go and lead. I went back. I became president of the Jewish society. I later became a sort of counselor to the students. But I didn't take it seriously. I still wanted to be a philosopher or something else, an economist or a lawyer. But, you know, it just gnawed at me. You know, it was there. It was lodged in my mind. I think
1: some listeners to this um, program might not. Understand that Rabbi Shnism was a huge influence on on Judaism at the time. <clears> and, uh, <throat> Perhaps you say a little he, bit about he, that. He
0: um, is the only Jewish leader I can think of in all of history who influenced every single Jewish community in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. He did what in Christianity you would call evangelism. Now, we don't have that in Judaism. that's
1: the nearest thing, isn't it?
0: Yeah. It's what they call nowadays outreach. He didn't reach out to non-Jews, but he reached out to Jews. And he sent his emissaries to the most remote places where he thought you might find Jews and see if you can bring them back by love. He was... I really, I mean, his whole approach was completely non, non-judgmental, very embracing, very inclusive. And he sent his guys everywhere. You know, there are a lot of uh, um, disaff- unaffiliated Jews and Israelis, for instance, in Kathmandu. Well, you go to Kathmandu, you will find one of Rabbi Schneerson's emissaries (laughs) there, and they have the biggest seder in the world. They're on Passover. They have 3,000 people celebrating Passover in Kathmandu.
1: He also had a sense, didn't he, that there was a message from Judaism to the world, not just to the Jewish community, but also through, the sort of, through Noah and through the, sort of, uh, the that sort of covenant, that there was a message also that Judaism has to the w- world.
0: He was totally passionate about that. Yeah. You know, there, there, there is this basic, what I call in the book, covenant of human solidarity, which really spoke to him basic principles of morality which apply to us, whatever our faith, whatever our background. And um, he really, as it were, empowered me to do that kind of thing.
1: That's probably where, though you don't... I don't think you say it in the book, but in the end of the book you draw a contrast between having a contractual relationship that people have or a covenantal relationship with each other and that the contractual relationship is perhaps a sort of inheritor of contemporary liberalism or liberalism in that, that sort of tradition. It's the eyes at the centre of it. Um, it's, it's the sort of thing that economics is often premised upon. Hmm. But you're wanting to say in order to have this sort of richer moral life, this we life, you have to see things in a covenantal way, not a yeah. contractual way.
0: Yeah. The, the, you know, I have a contract, let's say, with a guy who, who services my car. He's interested in the money, I'm interested in the car, we do an exchange, we both benefit. Uh, but that's a relationship for a specific purpose, for a limited time, and it doesn't carry over into anything else. A covenant is like a marriage, really. Two eyes come together to make a we. Each respecting the independence and integrity of the other, but nonetheless we pledge ourselves to one another in a bond of loyalty and love to do together what neither of us can do alone. Now, that's a very simple covenant, but the big covenant, the first big one really is the one with Noah after the flood, and then one with Abraham, and then with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Now, the concept of covenant is absolutely central to the Hebrew Bible. Um, It resurfaces again in modern times in the form of Calvinism and has a revolutionary effect on politics, first in Calvin's Geneva, then in Holland, then in Scotland. It plays a big part in the thinking of Milton and Locke in 17th century England, and then of course... Above all in in America, because all the early settlers were were Puritans, were Calvinists. The very first document in American political history, the Mayflower Compact of 1620 is a covenant. John Winthrop, you know, the city upon a hill, uh, makes a covenant on board the Arabella in 1630. And uh, covenant is fundamental to to the vision of American politics, absolutely central to Abraham Lincoln's vision.
1: It's funny, isn't it? Because when you think of those... You've just described sort of Reformation luminaries in a way. And when people think of the Reformation, they often think of it being about a reclamation of a sort of singular relationship with God. An I vowed
0: That's, thou that's Lutheran.
1: That's Lutheran. So that's not, that's the distinction. That's the Luther side. Yeah, yeah. The Calvin side has a, has a much richer sense of community.
0: Luther is, is speaking all the time really from the basis of the Pauline letters, Calvin is speaking from the basis of what Christians call the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very different mindset, so Calvinism—I mean, Lutheranism is much more personal, and Calvinism is much more political. Don't forget also, not only does the—what we would call the, the free society, the democratic state, have Calvinist roots but so does the market economy. We forget that Max Weber wrote a book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And by Protestant, he meant Calvinist. So Calvinism is that, you know, a a sort of secularized Calvinism is at the heart of the free societies of Britain and America. America more than Britain, but... And, of course, the... The phrase, the key phrase here is we the people, the opening of the preamble to the American Constitution. Nobody in England says we the people because we are Her Majesty's loyal subjects. So it's not covenantal. It's you you have a monarchy here and we are her subjects. But America is a bold experiment and I see America losing its way just as we are losing our way. Your book is, in a way,
1: uh, trying to chart some of that losing our way and and how that's happened. Social media is a part of it. Populism, the angry nature of populism, how we're just set against each other. Perhaps you could describe some of the roots of that. I mean, in America, if, if if it begins in this covenantal way, how is it broken down?
0: Well, no, but people no longer believe they're responsible for one another. Covenant means... We're all in this together. Right. That's covenant. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's clearly not so anymore. It's not so because the top third have separated away what Robert Reich called the secession of the successful. Uh, and the bottom third is mired in a situation in which, you know, it hasn't seen a rise in real income since 1970. And its hopes of social mobility are now zero. You know, very, very few people escaping from that world uh, because uh, communities that used to live together are now separated out. So the rich have gone that way and the poor have gone that way. Um, And uh, wherever you stand on the political spectrum in America, people are seeing the end of the American dream. The American dream being that anyone can get anywhere so long as they work hard enough. And it's no longer true.
1: When I was much more of a lefty than I am now, and I read um, some of your previous stuff, I remember a number of years ago reading uh, an essay that you wrote in The Dignity of Difference called The Moral Case for the Market Economy, I think it was. I always thought of you that that you were you had this strong sense of community but that you weren't terribly you weren't terribly critical of the sort of economic system that that uh, capitalism basically that i felt was sort of implicated in that move from the we to the i and you are, you are an apologist for the market economy, the capitalist market economy, aren't you? That, would that be fair to say?
0: I was then, yes. yes. That was 2001, 2002. Have you changed your mind? I, I think everyone's changed their mind. Everyone oh, wow. who has a mind has changed it. Yeah. I met uh, through speaking at TED uh, a couple of years ago somebody called Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio is the head of the largest hedge fund in the world, called Bridgewater. He is also the 57th richest person on earth. Right. And last year said income inequality in America is a national emergency and an existential threat to the future of America. Now, I mean, when somebody like that says something like that, you know that something very significant has happened. I have, in the last chapter of the book, referred to two people whose views on economics I respect a great deal. One is Sir Ronald Cohen, one of the first and most successful venture capitalists in Britain, who is now calling for something he calls impact economics in which a company should be judged not only by its profit, but by its social impact on people's lives. The other one is Raghuram Rajan, the former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, who is calling for a socioeconomics which will factor in the impact of corporations on society and community. Now, here are people sounding very much like Giles Fraser, for heaven's sake. Uh, and one's a venture capitalist, one's a hedge fund manager, and one's a senior economist. So I think anyone, Charles, you you did the persuasion, or maybe the world changed. Wow! I mean, I I, I was talking to Roger Scruton,
1: may his memory be a blessing, right? In on one of these confessions, maybe eighteen months ago, and um, and I and I challenged him with the idea that um, you know he talked a great game about community and place and all those things that were terribly important to him. But his commitment to capitalism was a commitment to the greatest change agent that the world has ever known. That it's sort of like this globalisation pushes people all around the world. Capital goes all the way around the world. And the idea that you can put together this strong sense of we, of place, of solidarity with these free movements of people, capital, and uh, these two things seem to clash with each other. And that seems to be one of the great sort of the things that we have to think about in in our time, Brexit and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah.
0: Look, my argument is very simply this, that we have tried to run a liberal democratic society on the basis of two institutions only, namely the democratic state and the market economy and it can't be done because you need some a third entity which is the we element the um, bit in which the parts of the world like family community, yeah. congregation, charity voluntary association where we don't join as I's seeking our own self-interest. We join as part of a we seeking the common good. Now, if that bit is strong, then the other two bits will be strong. You'll have a sense in politics if we're all in this together, and you'll have a sense in economics that those who have more than they need must share with those who have less than they need, which is the basis of an equitable economy. But you get rid of that third element, the moral sphere, the we, then the politics will gradually go wrong, and the economics will gradually go wrong, and both of them have gone wrong.
1: And we requires an infrastructure, doesn't it? It's not just a it's not just a feeling or a, a, a sort of sense of mind. It requires sort of like institutions, as it were, to be strong to keep that the we. So to keep that sense of we yes. there. Yes,
0: it, 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 it needs its ecology, it needs its environments. Then We need to rehearse their values daily and we need to celebrate them. You know, that's why religion is pretty good at this, because religion doesn't just come up with moral theories. Uh, It articulates them in prayer. It celebrates them in ritual. It narrates them in stories. Uh, We've tended to forget, you know, in academic philosophy departments, people tend to forget that ethics is more than just knowing what's right. It's also raising people so that they will do what's right
1: patterns of behavior yeah as you know my wife is Israeli, and so being married to someone who's jewish i have a a sort of you know partial interest and involvement in in this world and things like um shabbat and you know being together on friday night come what may mm. <laughs> you know these are the sorts of these, this is what I mean by infrastructure of, of this we, which is terribly important. I,
0: I think this idea of the Sabbath, it's so powerful. Yeah, very. Because you can't buy and you can't sell and you can't order somebody to do something. You can't employ somebody to do something for you. It's saying there is a limit. There is a world where economic values don't count. On the Sabbath, we're all equal. We all have Dignity. We all are free human beings. I mean, it's a lovely idea. It's so simple. Yeah. But when we began to lose it, we lost it. You know, Sunday it was deregulated in in Britain in the late nineteen eighty in the nineteen eighties, and it was such a mistake. Of course, it was deregulated everywhere. Yeah. But it was civil space. You know, families enjoyed being together. It was. Uh, but for the people who are listening to this, who
1: are who are not religious like you and I are, what are the sort of secular equivalents to these sort of we creating sort of patterns of behaviour and infrastructures that they seem the sort of involvements that people have the community often feels to me like you know something you join as an individual rather than your, you sense that you're a part of it's not as sort of, it feels like a mem just a sort of membership thing.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, Membership is is what makes religious communities very, very powerful, because otherwise you've got to sort of create this for yourself. Uh, But it does seem to me that, number one, any family has to have dedicated family time. It's got to be written out of the diary, whether it's Friday evening or Saturday evening or whatever, or it's Sunday lunch. used to be Sunday lunch in Britain. Um, You have to have dedicated family time a condition for dedicated family time is no screens. <laughs>
1: oh, yes. You know, no, <laughs> no phones, screen. no
0: tablets, no nothing. Mayor you're, Cooper. You, 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 you're making eye contact. You're not yep. texting under the table. Yeah, yeah. And that's terribly important. Yeah. I think all schools, I don't know to what extent they do, but all schools should build social action into their curriculum so that it should become absolutely normal and habitual that you will spend part of your time every week helping others, going outside your comfort zone, whether it's dealing with the elderly or the poor or the sick or whatever it is. Um, And I, I think you can build communities around social action. So, you know, religious ritual helps. And I have absolutely no doubt that that great Russian Jewish writer Ahad Ha'am was right when he said, more than the Jewish people kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath kept the Jewish people. Oh, yeah, I can see so that. So that, that is very powerful. But you can build secular equivalents around dedicated time as part of family and social action, and out of that social action comes community.
1: How how is the health of the Jewish community in Britain at the moment?
0: Um, Quite remarkable. You know, if if people could come back from a century ago, come back to life and just see where we are, they would not believe it. First of all, we have, you know, 70% of our children going to Jewish schools. So our children are more learned than their parents are, than their grandparents were. They would be absolutely amazed. They would be amazed that our synagogues are f- pretty much, for the most part, so young and right. so joyous. Yeah. We still talk the whole time in the synagogue just like that. They wouldn't be surprised about that. Um, but I think they would be surprised to see that, for instance, you could be in the public sphere— and still, you know, stay a practicing Jew and without attempting to hide your identity. They would be shocked by some of the anti-Semitism that's been floating around. But I think more than anything, they would be impressed by the confidence, the knowledge, and the commitment of Jews to Judaism.
1: Is that anti-Semitism that's been floating around? Is that something that has increased over the last few
0: years? Oh, yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah. What, what's been the, what's at the root of that?
0: Look, the root of all of this is a sense that things are going wrong. Uh, you know, we've had this, everyone has this sense. You know, I, I was absolutely gassed. I don't know whether you saw or uh, your listeners will have seen um, the film that won the Oscar this year, Parasite. I haven't actually. Or the film that got the most Oscar nominations, though it didn't win, uh, and that is uh, The Joker. Now, ostensibly, these could not be less alike, as the joke is, uh, an American film set, obviously, in Gotham City, and uh, Parasite is a <coughs> South Korean film. But they are both about the gap between the lowest and, and yeah. the successful. They are both uh, about the almost inescapable nature of being at the bottom. They're both about the resentments that that causes. And in both, the resentment uh, Mm. turns to violence. Now, those are scary films. Scary films. And
1: scapegoating.
0: And when things go wrong, people can ask, you know, what should we do about it? Or they can ask, who did this to us? Now, if they ask that second question, they're looking for a scapegoat. And the scapegoat of choice over the centuries has been Jews. Why Jews? Well, as you know, Giles, there are deep theological reasons for that. Jews were the other uh, in Christianity and to some extent in Islam as well. And it's very difficult to dislodge those beliefs because they're buried deep down in people's imagination and and they have no idea that they're there. So, for instance, Richard Dawkins' opening sentence of Chapter 2 of The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is... the nastiest character in fiction. Uh, it,
1: it happens all the time, and people are, people say that yeah. uh, uh, as as if they're saying something. They have no idea what they're saying when they say that. Indeed. That happens
0: all the time. Yeah. So uh, I said to Richard, that sentence shows yep. you are a Christian atheist, not a Jewish atheist. And he really bridled and said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Because only Christians use the phrase, the God of the Old Testament." It's a Christian phrase. Yeah, And Christians sometimes... It's a not... sort of
1: Christian heresy as well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say, from Marcion and, you it's, know... I it's, mean, it's the
0: Marcionite heresy. Yeah. Uh, because in Christianity, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. So, and, and of course, the imperatives of love uh, in the New Testament are taken from the Old Testament. I think they're very badly Toronto.
1: named Old and New Testament. There's not very much new in New Testament. Yeah.
0: So, you know, so um, the New Testament is what we would call a midrash yeah. on the Old Testament. It's an exe- exegetical elaboration. But the fact is that a phrase like that can be used by an intelligent human being like Richard Dawkins without for one moment understanding what he's talking about. Or let's say a journalist will use the phrase, the word pharisaic. Yes. You know, these words come heavy, dripping with hatred. And yet they're embedded in our common vocabulary. So it's exceptionally hard to get rid of them. And the association between Pharisees and hypocrisy yeah. is something that's made
1: without people having any thought about what the historic Pharisees may or may not have been like.
0: The historic Pharisees were not a million miles from the early Christians. They were yeah. very, very similar in doctrine and in, in practice. So, you know, there's, there's a long history. It's, it's difficult to identify and excavate and get rid of 2,000 years of of prejudice. Uh, Sadly, um, this has been a a very rude awakening for every member of my generation and beyond born after the Holocaust who believed that it could never happen again. And every one of us has been shaken. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I was very struck Uh, by the fact that uh, Tom Stoppard, who only discovered he was Jewish when he was, what, close to 60, I would have thought, has just uh, produced a play, Leopoldstadt, which is about the Holocaust. And although it's not autobiographical, it's about a family that's not a million miles from what he imagined his family to have been. Um, So when, when a Tom Stoppard, is haunted by anti-Semitism, then you think to yourself, well, it's, it's really getting to people.
1: It reminds me, once again, of the need for the state of Israel, actually, um, why the state of Israel came into being, and having Jewish children myself who are... Um, Going to be Israeli citizens, uh, have their Israeli passports. For me, when you see that, that there's a rising mood of anti Semitism, we had stickers on the phone box outside our house, all about really vile anti Semitic stickers, which yeah. the police haven't done very much about, which is a great pity. Yeah. But you suddenly realize that, you know, that that actually that place as a place of safety is extremely important. And uh, a lot of modern politicians don't understand
0: that. The poet Robert Frost said, Home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to let you in. And Jews need a home like everyone else. And yet people don't
1: understand it, do they? They don't understand that... that uh, the. the that they, they seem to have forgotten why it is that the state of Israel was created.
0: Charles took marrying an Israeli for you to understand, so it's hard to understand, you know. It is hard to understand people's fears from the outside, yeah. whatever those fears are and whoever they are. So, um, but I, it, 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 it has struck me that this last couple of years... The Jewish community has been really unnerved. Um, I think it feels very relieved that that things went the way they did. Um, but having said that, uh, being Jewish is not about anti-Semitism. It's about sanctifying and celebrating life. And it's about the things I write about in the book, about community, about family, about the we dimension of life, and about seeing all of that as an expression of covenant. That is, that it's holy somehow. You know, that's, that's how... God is described in the Hebrew Bible. He's a father. We're his children, you know. Or sometimes in Hosea and even in Ezekiel, even in Jeremiah, he is the lover and we are the beloved. So it's husband and wife, parent and child. These things are not just biological. They are sacred and they're very beautiful. And at the same time, they're very human.
1: That sense of what I I get with Judaism, why I love Judaism is uh, I, I get from it that's very, very strong sense about celebrating life, mm. about about life as being sort of God-breathed and that the creation is a sort of part of the connection that we have to the divine. Mm. That seems to me such a rich sort of theme within Judaism, Mm. and one that that's one that I thoroughly appreciate. Mm. It's not a Richard Dawkins (laughs) picture.
0: No, no, you know, and and the weird thing is, you know, people, uh, not everything comes through in translation, Uh, but the book in the Hebrew Bible where the word joy appears most is Ecclesiastes. Is it? which most people think is the most miserable book in the Bible. (laughs) But actually, Ecclesiastes, he's the perfect commentary on the consumer society. Because this man had everything, you know. He had wealth. He had houses. He had gardens. Had servants. He had, you know, the whole of chapter two is, I bought for myself. I built for myself. It's all I, I, I stuff. And what is, what does having everything do for him? You know, havel havelim hakol havel, which means meaningless meaningless everything's meaningless you know so he's got everything and he finds life meaningless and then finally he wakes up and says you know see the sleep of the laboring man is sweet see life with the woman you love you know work and love and just enjoy every day and the word rejoice appears although it doesn't appear in translation that often it appears 17 times uh in um that little book of Ecclesiastes where it only appears 16 times oh, you, in the you, whole you, of you the You've opened my eyes
1: to that because I always thought it was a pretty miserable sort of like, you know, everything is vanity type. Yeah, of that's it's what all you know vanity.
0: vanity. And yeah. then he gets real, you know, celebrate yeah. today, you know, the power of now and, you know, find a woman to love. This is a guy who had 300 wives and 700 concubines. <laughs> I mean, you know, of course that made him miserable. Find women. One and love her, then you'll be happy. I mean, this it was is... the Queen
1: of Sheba that did it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> let's talk um, finally about the the, the state of Christian Jewish relationships in this country, because there's this issue with anti-Semitism that's there, but it feels to me like. Christian-Jewish relationships are in a much better place than they've been for quite a while.
0: Christian-Jewish relationships in Britain are so stunningly good that I I find it I I'm I, I minded to say I suspect they're better here than anywhere in the world. Uh, it was my privilege to serve as Chief Rabbi for 22 years. Uh, the close friendship I was able to have with both George Carey and Rowan Williams, and Eileen and Jane. Uh, Our family had a close connection. And, of course, with the late uh, Basil Hume of Blessed Memory and Cormac Murphy O'Connor, these were very special friendships. I mean, close, intimate, heart-to-heart sort of friendships. And those friendships begat other friendships, So because we were close, we could invite in the Muslims and the Hindus and the Sikhs and the Buddhists and the Jains and the Zoroastrians and the Baha'i for various occasions when it was appropriate to come together, on good occasions and on difficult occasions. We, Rowan and I, took, took them all to Auschwitz, you know, and then on the way back, we sat for two hours in Krakow Airport, you know, just really, really talking from the heart, all of us. So I felt interfaith relations were um, were better here than anywhere that I've experienced anywhere else. Um, and I, f- I, I, f- I found that moving. The fact is that... I identified one important moment in the darkest night of all in 1942, when an outstanding Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, and an outstanding chief, Rabbi J. H. Hertz, came together to form the Council for Christians and Jews to fight anti-Semitism. That was a great, great moment. The other great moment occurred in 1960, when an extraordinary Pope, John XXIII, met the French Jewish historian Jules Isaac, who had written the books about after the... I mean, he'd lived through the Holocaust and lost family in the Holocaust. So he wrote about the, the roots of Christian anti-Semitism in the adversos judaeos literature, the anti-Jewish literature of the church fathers in the 3rd and 4th centuries. And John the read read his books and met... Uh, Jules Isaac and realized that he had to do something uh, repentance, metanoia, whatever. And that led him to set in motion the process called Vatican II, which issued in 1965, Nostra Aetate, which changed Jewish Catholic relations forever um, from estrangement to friendship. He didn't live to see that because he died in 1963. But that was a, a terrific moment. So those two moments for me, are, are a blaze of light in which, you know, antagonisms that had lasted for centuries suddenly evaporated. And today, really, we meet as friends.
1: One of the things that you've, you've often been a defender of is the establishment of the Church of England as a way of perhaps holding the ring for, for some of this sort of stuff. Perhaps you'd say something about that because it's often imagined that that is resented, the, establishment, the role of the establishment of the Church of England is resented by other faith communities.
0: Oh, that's absolutely not the case really not the case. Um, it's the other faith communities that want the church to continue to yeah. be established, because it means that there is a religious presence at key moments of, of, national, um, of national consequence. They take place as church services, either in uh, Westminster Abbey or in, in St. Paul's. And that gives an enormous religious presence in the public square. Now, the Church of England pays a high price for that. Being an established church, it has to be almost totally embracing, which means that it can't evolve doctrine as sharply as it would wish or evangelize perhaps as actively as it would wish. And the Church of England does pay a price for it, which I recognize. But it means that all of us know that there is, as it were, a host in the non-religious sense of host. Yes, you know, yes, it's, yes, it's, it, we are yes. invited because we know the host and we're going to have places of honor. So what happens, for instance, at a national ceremony in St. Paul's is that, uh, that all the Christian leaders will be one side of the island, uh, one side of the altar, and all the non-ones will be the other side. But we know each other and we know that it is only because of the Church of England that there is a church service at all. And uh, it
1: used to, you're quite right about it being, by the way, you're quite right about it being a sort of um, uh, something that the Church of England suffers from as, as well as a, a sort of opportunity. I mean, I remember when I was at St. Paul's, I thought, is this all about just dressing up and wandering around? You know, is that all we're supposed to be doing? Aren't we supposed to be having some more edge to what we're, what we're about? But I I can see it from the side that you're saying.
0: Yeah, look, if you're going to have edge. Do it somewhere other than St Paul's. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stand outside as you used to do. You know, and you know, I'm I'm all for standing outside as well. You know, but uh, listen, you've been there, you know the story. Yes, but, yes. Um, there is every need for a prophetic voice, and a prophetic voice is not an establishment voice. And I hope. You'll understand that that the book morality is a sort of prophetic kind of book, gentle prophetic. It's not very Jewish, is it? It's a sort of gen-
1: It's quite a sort of. I mean, if if I read if I read most of this book, I would say the heroes of it are people like Alistair McIntyre and. D- David Brooks in the sort of modern modern sphere; those are the sorts of those are the people that you feel are the heroes of this book. It's a sort of book where you wear your Judaism light lightly, perhaps. Yeah, I, I,
0: I, I write lots and lots of very Jewish books. I know you do, <laughs> but uh, this one had to be as non-Jewish as I could make it, because this book is about all of us. And um, I really needed to speak to people without religious commitments. I needed to speak to people who have a sense of economics or politics and understand that things are going wrong. And I needed to lead them. So I needed, you know, it takes a long time to find the right vocabulary. Um, Because, and I mean, even calling a book Morality can be off-putting to a lot of people. <laughs> oh, he's going to tell us not to enjoy ourselves, you know. Um, so, I've, really, the argument is from I to we, really, sort of thing. And uh, key phrases like cultural climate change and things. Yeah. Um, because I need to engage the widest possible audience to say, ah, aha, uh-huh. That makes sense to me now. Now I can see all these very different things that have been bothering me are connected. The way excessive heat and excessive cold and drought on the one hand and flooding on the other, that's all connected because that's climate change. So here are a lot of things happening because of cultural climate change. And keep it as simple as possible. Um, and when you keep it that simple, you hope to change minds just a little bit. And then, you know, you can be a little more prescriptive, I think, but not in this book. You know, don't try. <laughs> I know a book is longer than thought for the day, but, yes, you yes, know, yes. they kind of tell you in thought for the day, don't try and say two things. No, no, no. <laughs> one, You've got two minutes, 45 seconds. One thing is enough. So I've tried really just to say one thing in this book.
1: You're supposed to be retired, Rabbi Sachs, but I don't see any sign of you slowing down at all. And we'd spoke before about the fact that your diary is one of the books that you won't look at because it's sort of terrifying.
0: Yeah. Uh, My cure for depression and uh, any kind of withdrawal symptom is overschedule your diary. So you just just don't have time. And it really, really works. And uh, when, uh, you know, I met, uh, the last time I met, him in Paris, uh, who was 91 and still president of the state of Israel. And he was looking pretty young. And I said, What's the secret of eternal youth? And he said, Never retire.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no goal for you then, nope. <laughs> Sorry, absolutely none. Just grandchildren. Just
0: grandchildren. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Very Giles, nice. To know, it's very been a nice. pleasure. Cheers, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website unheard.com.